So the book of, so the book of Ephesians, we've been done a verse-by-verse study in Ephesians. We left 21 last week of chapter 4. We'll pick it up at verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Father, we do ask that you just bless this time and study of your word. And Lord, we're very privileged to be here. We're privileged because we belong to you. Lord, that we're citizens of heaven. We're privileged because we belong to the body of Christ. We can be here as a group of believers to be edified and encouraged in your word and taught. I pray that we would be attentive. I pray that we would right now just remember our cell phones need to be off or silenced. We want to be free from distractions because all week long they go off. There's all kinds of noise. The noise of the world, work, all the things that need to be done. And Lord, we want to hear from you right now, free from distractions. And Lord, we're very privileged to be here to open up your word. And so Lord, teach us. Build us up, instruct us. And Lord, may we be edified and comforted, exhorted. We give you this time to study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So quickly remind you of where we have been so far and studied very carefully thus far in the book of Ephesians, the apostles writing to the Christians at Ephesus. You remember that in Acts chapter 19, Paul in his third missionary journey, he would make Ephesus his center of operation, his base of operation, Ephesus being in proconsular Asia, which today is Turkey, and a major port city, a fairly large city, a couple hundred thousand people. Well, Paul, as he went into Ephesus, he ministered there for totality, as we know from the scriptures, for three years. He stayed in the city of Ephesus longer than any other city in his missionary journeys. Probably the next closest that he stayed, you know, was Corinth for a year and a half. But in Ephesus, he stayed for three years. While he's there, he's making tents. He, he's preaching the gospel. Miracles are happening. People are getting saved. There's a school of discipleship that he had called the school of Tyrannus, where he's teaching young men the whole counsel of God's word we know from Acts chapter 20. And from there, those young men would go out and plant churches in proconsular Asia. That's what most Bible scholars believe and church historians, that as you read, for example, in Revelations chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, which includes the church of Ephesus, that those other churches, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Pergamos, Smyrna, the others, were probably planted by those men who came out of that school of discipleship. And so great fruit came from Paul the Apostle, his ministry during that time. It's about 54 A.D., and, and so many people were coming to Christ. The whole city was uh, turned over to Christ, given up their occultic practices, their idol and false worship. And we know that as the end of Paul's stay there, what happened was the silversmiths, because they would make these, these idols of Diana out of silver, the people stopped buying those idols because they were coming to Christ. And so Demetrius and the other silversmith, they began to riot, and Paul was the subject of that riot. And he was taken out of the city. He was driven out of the city, as it would happen to him oftentimes on his missionary journeys. It seems like wherever Paul went, either revival broke out or a riot broke out. In this case, both broke out in the city of Ephesus. And it's interesting that shortly after he left Ephesus, when he's writing 
his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter that we have recorded in the scripture, Second Corinthians, he says that we were pressed beyond measure, so much so that we were despised of life. That's how bad it was. That's how difficult it was. But the God who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations, not some of our tribulations, but all of our tribulations has brought comfort to us. And he would talk about his ministry. And we know that Paul also would mention about how he faced beasts in Ephesus. Now, uh, scholars are wondering, is he literally talking about facing lions in Ephesus? Or is it the beast of man that came against him? But Paul had a great impact in the city of Ephesus. Now, about seven years later, he is writing to the church, as you know, that he finds himself uh, chained to a Roman guard as he's waiting to go on trial there in, in Rome to go uh, before Caesar Nero. And at this time, he takes pen to paper and he writes this most incredible letter to the believers at Ephesus, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God. And he would write that I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He, he didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome or Caesar Nero. At the same time, that he is writing the book of Ephesians, one of the other prison epistles, and that's what these books are called, the books that he wrote, the letters that he wrote while he was in prison, his first imprisonment in Rome. He also wrote the book of Philippians, and he said, my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul would write to the Ephesian you know, church that, hey, this is the spiritual blessings that you have that we've looked at very carefully over the last several weeks, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this book. And he reminds them that you've been taken into the heavenlies because Christ has saved you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, chapter 2, but Christ has made us alive. And in chapter 1, of course, he reminds them of the spiritual blessings that you and I have as believers. And you see, it's so incredible when we remember it as our, our minds and our hearts are enlightened with these truths that we have been chosen, as Travis said it, during our worship. And we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We've been redeemed. We uh, have been forgiven. We have an eternal inheritance and all these these blessings that take us into the heavenlies. And we know that we are saved by grace through faith. It's, it's not of yourself. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. And we have no reason to boast in our salvation because we were dead. Someone who's dead can't do anything. We were dead spiritually, very much alive physically. And so Paul gets us to that place where we understand, that again, the privileged status in and um, blessings that we have that are found in Christ that only come from Him. He is our peace. He is our salvation. He's brought you near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're no longer strangers and, and aliens and, and foreigners, but you belong to this thing called the church, which is a holy temple unto God. And, you know, we can belong to clubs, can't we? We can belong to to certain groups, and we can kind of be proud of that. And, and, but the, I think the thing for us to remember as Christians is that we belong to the greatest thing here on this earth, the greatest group, a holy habitation, living stones placed together in this thing called the church, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So after he reminds us of all that that we looked at, as I mentioned, then in chapter 4, which continues to the end of the epistle, the second part of the book is, now this is how you walk 
with Christ. This is how you live for him. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called because you have been so blessed, because of the privileged status that you do have. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we saw that he tells us as members of the church were to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And to each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he would tell us these gifts that we looked at last week, given to the church, that we may maintain the unity. He gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the purpose, the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for edifying the body of Christ. So we talked about that's what should be taking place in the church, uh, the work of ministry, being equipped for the work of the ministry, and, and edifying the body of Christ. And so we talked about this section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 quite extensively, Gifts given to maintain the unity because we're all working together. God has called you and gifted you in a ministry, and he's called me and gifted me in a ministry, and we're all working together in the church that it may function in a way that it's supposed to. But then in chapter 4, verse 17, the next section that we began to look at last week, and we'll continue through chapter 5, verse 18, he tells us how it is that we also walk worthy of the calling which we're called, and that is to walk in purity and righteousness. You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. He's using that term as a non-believer. Don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles, and that is, how is it that they walk? Well, in the futility of mind. That is, basing their minds on things that are worthless and vain. There's a lot of voices and a lot of things out there that really, in eternity's values and perspective, are really worthless, really vain. We're not to set our minds on those things. And, and he says that their understanding being darkened, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. That is spiritual ignorance. They don't know the truth of God. They've rejected it. There's darkness because they don't have the light, Jesus Christ. And there is a blindness in their hearts. And there's a hardness in their heart. They've given themselves over to lewdness. You see, that's the life of an unbeliever. And you're not to walk in that way. You're not to think in that way. You're not to live that way any longer. But verse 20, and this is where we ended last time, but you've learned Christ. You've heard Christ. In other words, you're being taught by Christ as truth is in Jesus. Jesus would say to those disciples in that upper room that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He did not say that I am a truth. I'm one of lots of truths that are out there. He says I am the truth. He didn't say that I am a way. I'm one of many ways to salvation to, to the Father. He said, I am the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you see, as we gather here on Sundays and on Wednesday nights and other times, and when you have your devotion, I pray that we would learn Christ, that we would grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus Christ and our closeness with him. And that's so, what's so wonderful about being a Christian. We have relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and we can draw nigh to him, as James says, or close to him, and he promises he'll draw close to us, and we can know him and have relationship with him and, and closeness with him. We belong to him, and you see, we're different than the world. So Paul continues to write about that as he writes about how we are to walk in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 22, let's pick it up. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness in holiness. So what we're to do is put off the old, put on the new. Be renewed in your mind. We are renewed as we learn of him, keeping our minds on the things of God. So we put off the old man, the old stuff. We dump the old life, and you change your mind. You change your way of thinking. The idea of putting off the old and putting on the new is the idea of actually uh, taking off an old set of clothes, taking off the old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. If you're working out in the field or working outside at the end of the day, especially in the summertime when you're hot and sweaty and dirty and dusty and all that, there's nothing better than coming home and taking off those old dirty clothes and being able to, to clean up and wash yourself. Maybe perhaps some of you, I think a lot of you, have gone camping this summer, whether you went for a couple days or maybe for a whole week. And you come home and you got, you know, bug spray all over you and dirt and mud and, and uh, sunscreen and all of this. And it's nice to get those old dirty clothes off. You don't continue in the dirty clothes for the rest of the summer, do you? So you take it off and you put on a new set of clothes. And I think this is so wonderfully illustrated in the book of Zechariah in chapter 3, where there's Joshua, the high priest. He's standing before the Lord, and he has his garments on. Now, to the world, to everyone else, they would look at the high priest that, you know, had his priestly robes that you read about in the book of Exodus, and he would look so holy and look at the beautiful robes that he's wearing. But before the Lord, it's dirty clothing. And the Lord says, take those dirty garments off to Joshua and give him a new set of garments, clean garments. And it's a powerful illustration of the truth that's given to us in Scripture. Hey, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And as Isaiah says that our righteousness in and of ourselves are as filthy rags before the Lord. And so what we are to do is to put off the old clothes, that is, recognize our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, come to Him, repent, turn to Him, be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then we are robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand as Christians, this is important, that Jesus isn't just added to our old life, but the old life dies, and He becomes our new life and true righteousness and holiness. It is that new creation that we've talked about before. You've heard me quote it quite a bit, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a new creature in Christ, all things become new. Because you've put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. There is great deceit that goes along with lust, and the Bible declares that very clearly. Why? I lust after someone. I lust after something. I want to pursue pleasing my flesh all the time. And it is deceiving in that I am deceived into believing that I, if I can just fulfill my flesh and have that worldly pleasure and that desire then I'm going to be ultimately satisfied and fulfilled and happy in life. That's the deception. And people who fall into that trap and think that way and live that way are greatly deceived because eventually what will happen is this, that they're going to experience pain and bondage and heartache and hurt and defeat and despair and hopelessness. There may be a temporary satisfaction, but the end of it is misery. If I can just be involved with him or her, someone else other than your spouse, if I can just 
pull up that thing on the computer, that one site, if I can watch these movies or hang out at this place and party with the guys or with the old gang. There's a lot of things that we can lust after and pursue after that is very worldly and harmful. And here's the thing about fulfilling the desires of our flesh. We need to understand this, that as you're lusting after them, it's like a fire. The more that you feed it, the more that it demands, the hotter that it burns, and the larger that it gets. One of the tactics of the enemy is this, and don't be ignorant of Satan's devices, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, if you just take one look, go ahead, pull up that, that website, you know, that site that has pornography, just, just once. Nobody will see you. Just sneak downstairs. Go ahead and watch that movie. Go ahead and go out, you know, to that place after work just once. The guys that are bugging you, go ahead. You want to do it. You know you'd like to let loose a little bit. Go ahead and just flirt with, with her, with him. Your spouse won't know about it. You're just doing a little, having a little fun. Go ahead, just once. Just do it a little bit. He knows that if he can get you to do that, just snort this, just just drink this. Just take that. You'll feel good. Let loose. You know, you only live once. Have some fun. Why be all uptight? And he knows that you do it once, and then you'll want to do it again. And he's got you. You want to do it again. And pretty soon you find yourself being in bondage, and you're deceived, and you give in to your lust, and your flesh will be fed more and demand more and then burn more. And that's why we are instructed to put it off, set it aside, don't have anything to do with the old man, with the corruption that you are involved in, things that you are saying yes to, you say now no, I'll put it off. I was deceived into thinking that was good for me and would satisfy me. I'll put on the new man, which consists of righteousness and holiness, and he will enable me to live a life that is pleasing to him because he's given everything to me that pertains to godliness in Christ Jesus. And so I then can experience that abundant life that he has for me. You see, you put it off, the old. First, you learn of Christ. Your mind is renewed because Jesus is truth. No more deception. And then you put on the new because you're a new creature in Christ. And then you live rightly. And then instead of having pain, you have praise. Instead of misery, you have joy. Instead of confusion, you have wisdom. Instead of being in bondage and being weak, you have freedom. You have strength. And that's what God wants to do in our lives and what he wants to work in your life. So how is it that we put off? What is it that we put off? Let's begin to look at it. Verse 25, therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. One of the things that you and I are to put off is lying. Just stop it. Don't do it. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, well, just think about it. Or it's okay to just tell a lot of white lies. Or, you know, maybe you have the gift of exaggeration. And that's okay. No, just put it off. You're to speak forth truth. You are members of one another. Note that. What is the apostle telling us? You see, when you lie, it's like you are lying to everyone. 
You're hurting others in the body of Christ. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your family. You're hurting your spouse when you lie. It's a big problem. Here's a problem as well. You lie and then you tell more lies. You got to lie to cover up the lie that you're telling. And you become so deceptive. I've known people that lie so much that they think it's truth. And they think they're getting away with it. And people around them know that it's a lie. And so many relationships have been severed and strained and broken because of lying and marriage is being destroyed. And that's why God says in Proverbs that he hates lying. He does not hate the liar, but he hates lying because it's so deceptive and it's so destructive and it hurts so many people. One of the things that when I do premarital counseling, marriage counseling, I go over this section with that couple and I tell them, you do not lie to each other. And if you haven't made that commitment, and I'm sure that most of you have that are married, you make a commitment, we will not lie to each other. And if you're lying to your spouse and you're living a lie, then you need to repent and stop because you're going to destroy your marriage. So you're to put it aside. Put away lying. Know that, that it's going to hurt and be deceptive and destructive to others. And you're going to end up reaping the consequences of it. And then in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So what does Paul mean here? How can I be angry and not sin? Well, there is a righteous anger, a righteous anger against sin. Remember last week, if you're here, I made reference to Mark chapter 3. Jesus goes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and, and there are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they're trying to trap him and trick him to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus looked at those religious leaders with anger, and he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. The way the Pharisees lorded over the people, they didn't care about the people. The way they treated the people, not with love, pride and arrogance and bondage they put the people in. It was Jesus when he went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He would overturn the money changers' tables and he drove out the oxen and the sheep and the sacrifices and he rebuked the religious leaders and said, that you've made my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. He was angry as he made a whip and drove out those animals. You see, there is an anger that is not sin, and then there is an anger that is sin and leads to sin. So you might be thinking, well, what's the diff, Pastor? How do I know the difference between the two? Again, Jesus had anger towards sin because he was other-centered. He loved and cared for the people, had compassion for them. He was angered at those religious leaders because they only cared for themselves and brought the people under the bondage of their religiousness and traditions and it stopped the work of God. You made a, the word of God of no effect is what he told them. When I sin, when I become angry and it leads to sin, it's because I begin to focus on me. And I can become very selfish and self-centered. I didn't get what I wanted, when I wanted it, or my way, and the time I wanted it. 
And I begin to lash out. I'm out of control with my anger. I'm not in control. I say things that are hurtful and damaging. And that's when we get into trouble. Matter of fact, Jesus would give us some guidelines. He says, if you're angry towards your brother, you go to them and reconcile with them. Get it settled with them. He said, you've heard it said of old that, that you shall not commit murder. Those religious leaders would say, of course we haven't committed murder. Well, if you are angry at your brother without a cause, then you're guilty. You're in danger of the judgment. Jesus given the higher standard of our heart issue. Oh, I wouldn't murder them literally, but... I'll begin to talk about them, character assassination. And my heart, you know, they're dead to me. And so Jesus talking about those things when we become angry. So don't let that anger cause you to sin or your anger be sin. The answer is what? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, in other words. Wrath is you, you're angry and then you have malice. What is malice is when you stew about it. I know that none of you guys have ever done that about a situation, but I know I have at times where I think about something, I'll just stew about it and stew about it, and all of a sudden it leads to wrath, where it's like a volcano about ready to explode. You're out of control. You lose your temper or whatever it might be. So Paul says, put it aside. You, you don't go to bed grinding your teeth and your anger grows into malice. Malice, you know, stewing, and then it leads to wrath. You don't give place to the devil. You begin to have a grudge and then the, the, the devil in your bitterness and anger and malice and wrath and all of this has a foothold into your life. And again, this is a verse that husbands and wives need to understand and we need to apply in our lives because in our marriages there are times where we'll be frustrated, we can get angry, we get upset, we face challenges, difficulties. That's just the way it is in life. And we don't go to bed angry. You pray together. And you give it to the Lord and you say, you know what? We're going to come up with an answer. We may not resolve this tonight, but we know that the Lord's going to guide us and direct us. And we're one flesh. And the Lord's going to be good. And he's going to see us through. And we're going to have understanding. And we're going to work through this. Because I love you and you love me. But you don't go to bed with both of you or one of you angry because what Satan will do is he's like, ah, I got a place now. And now it's like a wedge that he just wants to pound and drive between you two in your marriage. And that's what happens when couples go to bed angry and full of wrath day after day because they did not apply what Paul says here in their life. And I've known couples, unfortunately, that they'll be in the home and they won't talk to each other for weeks. They'll text each other, but they won't talk to each other. And they go to bed night after night, mad. Maybe one downstairs on the couch, the other upstairs, whatever it may be. Listen, you put it aside. You may be angry. You may have good reason to be angry. You may be frustrated, but you come together as a couple and you don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let it turn to that. And in verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. So check out God's you know, cure for kleptomania. Stop stealing. Start working that you may do good. I believe that sometimes, many times, 
that people steal because they don't want to work. God's plan that we see throughout the scripture is the work, that work is good. We're told it's good. And our work should harm no one, but it should help others. You say, well, I don't steal. I don't go to Walmart and steal. I don't break into people's homes and steal. I don't steal cars. I, you know, I don't do that stuff. Well, maybe, maybe you're just stealing a little bit from your employer. You're loafing when you should be working. You're getting paid for it. You call in sick when you're perfectly well. Maybe you steal from the government when you fill out your taxes. Now, hear me on this, all right, because this is a tough one. I don't think you should pay any more than you should, but, you know, I'm just going to cheat a little bit. Government steals from me, takes from me. Listen, the point I'm trying to get apart is you don't steal, period. Cleverly, making excuses for it, whatever. And here the Lord tells us, this is what I want you to do. I want you to just start giving. You render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, Jesus said, and you render to things that belong to God to God. Here, here's your coin back. And as we apply that in our lives, we're to be working with our hands to help others. And as we realize that we have opportunity to give, listen, none of us don't steal from God. You don't steal from God. You say, I never stole from God. How, how do I steal from God? Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, the last book of the Old Testament, God said, you've robbed me, you guys. And they said, how have we robbed you? And he said, well, you've robbed me in the tithes and offerings. You don't rob from the Lord. Give God what is his to be used to help those in the body of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. And then verse 29, it gets better here, all right? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. I believe that most of the problems, by far, in the church, in relationships, in families, would not exist if believers, all of us, followed this commandment. Don't speak corruptly, but speak graciously. Here's something. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all made a commitment, me included? I've been guilty. Lord, forgive me. If we made that commitment, I'm not going to say anything about anyone unless I felt like it, I could say it with them right there in my presence. What do you think about that? Lord, help us. Lord, mature us. That I'm not going to say anything about anyone unless they, I felt like they were there, they'd be comfortable with what I was saying. It really is a powerful message here that these little commandments, that what to put on and put off. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you'll know where a person is at by the words that they speak, by what he or she, what they say and how they talk. Remember Jesus is on trial in Caiaphas' house, and there's Peter out there in the courtyard. He's warming himself at the fire, and a little girl comes up to him and says, hey, you're one of them. You belong to one of the disciples of Jesus. I know you are. And he's going, no, I'm not, blankety, blank, blank. Get out of here. I don't know the man, blankety, blankety, blank. Denying the Lord, cursing and swearing continually is what the scripture says, not once but three times. She said, oh, yes, you are, because you're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent, by your speech. You know, we can tell where somebody is from, can't we? Certain part of the country, 
by their accent, whether they got a southern draw or from out east in New York, you know, Boston area. We can tell if they got a Midwest accent. You can tell if they're from, you know, Britain, from Australia, from, you know, a different part, from Russia, Far East, uh, somebody from that. We can kind of tell where they're at by their accent because their speech shows that. Well, when it comes spiritually, we can tell where somebody is at spiritually. Because just as that girl said, your speech, I can tell. We can tell where somebody's at by the words that they speak. And I know that if somebody's speaking words of edification and comfort and they're, you know, building people up, words of kindness, I know that they're really close to the Lord. They're seeing the Lord and they're really desiring to follow after the Lord. They're feeling the heart of the Lord. But that person that constantly is tearing down and complaining and murmuring and grumbling and griping, I know that they're struggling spiritually. So Paul writes, Let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but rather what you speak should edify and comfort and build up. Remember David, Psalm 64 on Wednesday night? He's speaking about those who came against him and how they shoot arrows of bitter words and how we can do that so easily. Just we let them fly. Bitter words, corrupt words, tearing down words, the things that proceed out of the mouth, remember, come from the heart. And then verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We'll be, be done in just a minute, but I don't want you to, to zone out right now because this is important. Don't grieve God the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 31, let all bitterness. What is bitterness? We've been talking about bitterness. Bitterness is that resentful spirit that doesn't want to reconcile. I don't want to reconcile. I, I don't want to talk to them. I, I just... You're bitter. Just the word itself, bitter. I'm bitter towards them, resentful towards them. And then you're to let all bitterness, wrath. We've already talked about that when you blow your top. Anger, clamor, that's just loud quarreling and fighting. And evil speaking, put it put away from you with all malice where you just continue to stew and go in that direction. It grieves the Holy Spirit. I get bitter, I speak evil of someone, I'm mad at them, I begin to tear them down. When I fight and quarrel and lose my temper, it grieves God. I lie, I steal, I'm pursuing vain things of the world, whatever it might be. And you see, it's more than uh, grieving of the Holy Spirit, it's more than the Lord looks down and says, oh, I'm shocked at what you just did. I can't believe you just said that. It's more than, I can't believe you just did that. I, I, that's not exactly the idea, but... His grief is this. When we do those things that grieve him, it's like, I grieve for you, the Lord is saying. He is grieved for us over our own sakes because you're not living in holiness and pursuing righteousness and speaking edification, and thus you're not going to experience any abundant life. And the way that you're talking and the way that you're ruining your witness and ruining your marriage and the way that you're living and lying and stealing and you're hurting the people around you, your children. You're ruining your witness, your ministry, and it's bad news. And I'm so sorry for you. I'm grieved because of the negative repercussions that it has for you and the people around you. And it breaks his heart. You know, they say that the strongest argument for Christianity is Christians. When you and I 
in our witness, not just with our words, but with the way that we live our life, that people say, hey, there's something different about you. They see the reality of Christ in us, right? It's the strongest evidence of, of the reality of Christ. The strongest argument for Christianity is Christians. But you know what the strongest argument against Christianity is? Christians that are living after the world, pursuing lustful things, tearing people down with words, lying, stealing, all of this. It is the strongest argument against Christianity. Why should I be like that? Everybody else is like that. You're a Christian. Why should I be a Christian? I'm already like that. And I've had people actually sit in my office that didn't know anything about Christianity that said, you know, I had these Christians at work, and they were no different than me. Why should I become a Christian? Because of the witness that was given to them. Moses. Numbers chapter 20. is at the end of his ministry, end of his life. Forty years putting up with the children of Israel. Forty years of them murmuring, complaining, grumbling, wanting to stone him. You know, let's, let's go back to Egypt. They would have a vote to get rid of Moses, you know. And let's go back to Egypt. And the vote would be two and a half million to nothing, you know. That's what he had to put up with for 40 years. At the end of his ministry, they're thirsty. They're at Kadesh. And the Lord says, give him something to drink. And Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth, he takes a staff and he struck the rock twice. And I think he really just said, bang, bang. And he yelled at the people. He said, must we fetch water for you, you rebels? And he yelled at the people. And the Lord said, Moses, come here. We need to have a little talk. Because you did this, you're not going to go into the promised land. And when I was first a young Christian and I read that, I thought, that's pretty hard. I mean, Moses put up with those people for 40 years in a tough ministry, and he was so faithful, and he makes this mistake, and he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And I can understand why Moses would do that, because I would have a tendency, it was me, I probably would have gone into the crowd swinging that staff at the people. <laughs> and I'm just being honest with you. I've had it with them. Forty years of murmuring and complaining. So why wasn't he able to go into the promised land? Because he misrepresented the Lord. It was a beautiful picture of Moses at the beginning of the ministry. Strike the rock once, and then you speak to the rock. And that rock, of course, Paul says, is Christ. And Christ was stricken once for us, and now we speak to him. And then striking the rock misrepresented the Lord, I wasn't mad at them, Moses. What says we must fetch water? Taking the glory. You misrepresented me, and now you're not going to go into the promised land. So we get angry, and we begin to speak corrupt words, tear people down. We begin to pursue the things of the world. We lie, we steal. All these things that we've talked about, we get angry. And we lose out on going into the promised land, we misrepresent the Lord in his goodness, in his truth. And the Lord says, I want to do wonderful things for you and through you. Can I trust you? And there we are, taking our staffs and striking the rock and living after the world or saying things of the world. And the Lord says, it grieves me. That's the grief of the Holy Spirit. So put it away. So what is it that we're to do and how we treat others? Verse 32, and here's some homework for the week, all right? I don't give you homework, but I'm going to give you homework this week. 
You look at verse 32 here and go through it and really pray through it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. What does that mean? Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we treat one another. Be kind, tenderhearted towards one another. Forgiving one another is what we are to put on. Remember how the Lord has forgiven us so abundantly and readily. Not harboring unforgiveness and anger and speaking corruptly. Put that off. And then as we continue and pick it up next week, we're to see how we walk in love, how we walk in light, how we walk in wisdom. So, Father, thank you. We thank you for this, this time in your word and these few verses here are so rich and, Lord, so convicting but so necessary because we want to put off the old and put on the new. And I pray that all of us, whether you're listening live stream or in the coffee shop or here in the sanctuary, maybe listening to the study later on the radio, that you can't put off the old until you come to Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him, to be forgiven of sin, to be rescued by him, forgiven, made alive spiritually, as you come to him, the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. Because he loves you. And there's a problem, and that is we've all sinned. And Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. He came to die for you specifically for your sins. All of your sins were placed upon him. And he took the judgment that you deserve, that, that we all deserve upon himself, the wrath of the Father. And he died in place of you and for you. And before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price. He was put into a grave, and then he rose again after three days. You see, no other religious leader died for you, conquered sin and death by rising from the grave. No one. They didn't come forth. Only Jesus, proving in what he did and who he was as he claimed to be God in human flesh, the Son of God. And he loves you so much. He wants to save you. Will you call out to him? He is your only salvation. There's no other sacrifice for sin. He's the author of eternal life. And he wants to make all things new, give you a new heart, to robe you with the righteousness of Jesus, to give you a new life, a new beginning. Will you call to him? If you've never done that before, it's not about religion. It's about relationship with God through Jesus Christ and being forgiven. You pray, Jesus, I come to you, a sinner. And I turn to you. I ask that you would forgive me. I believe that you died on that cross for my sins. You're alive because you rose from the grave. And I open my heart to you. And I come in faith. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. The Lord of my life, the Savior of my life. Fill me with your love and with your spirit and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And I thank you for making me alive and forgiving me in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, what I want you to do is if you're watching on live stream, call, call us during the week or 
If you're here in this building, anyone made a decision for Christ, come up when we conclude the service and pray with Pastor John. And he wants to pray with you and give you some things and encourage you. But for all of us, Lord, help us to put on the new man. Be a new man and woman of Christ. Living in a way that pleases you. And being a witness to a dark and dying world. May we take these things to heart and apply them in our lives. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had together. So bless the rest of our day. May we be light as we leave this place, as we go our way this week. Bless all the kids that have started school or starting school this week, and I pray that your hand would be upon them and bless their school year. May we just encourage them in their walk with the Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be here, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? Hope we can see you Wednesday night. Book of Psalms, come join us if you can. If you need prayer for anything, Pastor John's here to pray with you and bless you in that way. Lord bless you as you go your way. We're closing song and be dismissed. Set apart for our God above, set apart for the one we love, set apart for your glory, we are yours, yours. Everything for you alone, everything to make you known, set apart for your glory, we are yours, yours. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Sunday. And we hope to see you real soon.